0: A lot of people take for granted that the current system benefits the U.S. It basically extends our hegemonic reach, but at the cost of our own domestic vibrancy, right? So there's an knee-jerk reaction for politicians, I think, to defend the dollar system when if they go down the rabbit hole, they realize that for maybe 90 percent of Americans, the dollar system is not really working for them anymore.
1: Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I've not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did, All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And do you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs and I am now mining Bitcoin. And do you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And do you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in earning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend, and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership, but please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com forward slash Peter, which is blockf icom forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin and I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017 and the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software which interfaces with your device and you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Hi, Lynn. Hey, how's it going? It's so good. So good to see you. So good to do this in person.
0: Yeah, you as well. We got this nice view here.
1: Yeah, we, we can just see the top of the Empire State back there.
0: Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, I see it.
1: And we got Schiff with us. Uh, two, two pictures. Yeah, uh, uh, Cullen brought that one with him. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So now anyone coming has, has to bring a Peter Schiff photo, and we're going to have a <laughs> whole collection of them. I'm going to be carrying a big bag of them with me everywhere we go. We've uh, we've had a year of just doing this on screen um, and I prefer in person so I really appreciate you coming in to do this. Um, we've covered a lot of stuff this year and I talked about the idea that if we got together at the end of the year we would do a bit of a review of the year but I was thinking about that it's just a bit boring. It's just like regurgitating what we've talked about and really actually I'm more interested in the future in the next decade and uh, one of the things that keeps uh, sticking in my mind is when I talked to Balaji about currency wars. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I realize that digital technologies, cryptocurrencies actually uh, enable that a bit more. There's, I feel like there's two forms of currency war that we're facing. It's between nation states and then individuals choosing to opt out of nation state currencies. So I felt like that'd be a good show to make. What do you think?
0: I think so. I mean, basically, I- the whole monetary system is, is poorly understood by most people. It, it's kind of a, a Rube Goldberg machine under the surface. And there are a handful of people that have been kind of analyzing it in depth. I mean, Alex Gladstein does a lot of articles on, on kind of the nuances of it, kind of the, the, the cost of maintaining it. And I don't think a lot of people just understand how much work went into setting up the way it is. It's not like an accident the way it got set up. And they also don't necessarily understand the resource cost, uh, multiple types of resources for maintaining it the way that it is. Um, and so when they talk about, you know, other forms of, of money and how they have resource costs, they don't realize that the existing system does have resource costs and causes all sorts of problems.
1: Thank you, taxi driver. We get the beauty of New York with us here. (laughs) So what is it that people don't truly understand then?
0: I think that how much of the system is designed, uh, and also specifically some of the costs of the system. And so, for example... They don't know that, in for example, in the 1970s, there were various deals set up between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia and other OPEC nations to make it so that they only priced their oil in dollars, regardless of who they, they sold it to. And that we basically used intentional tactics to try to put the dollar, and specifically the treasury securities, at kind of the heart of the financial system to try to replace gold. And... I think that they assume that comes naturally, like if you just have the biggest military or the biggest economy, that it happens organically, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, countries that that achieve that type of status with their currency and their bonds generally do so by design. Uh, And so the the UK uh, pushed for that system uh, in the prior uh, system, and the United States has been kind of pushing to maintain the system, constructing it, maintaining it uh, this whole time. Uh, And so I don't think a lot of people focus on the fact that a lot of it's designed and that there's all this cost with it.
1: What was the primary benefit to the U.S. of putting the world on a dollar standard following the gold standard?
0: Well, so after the gold standard failed, I mean, we can go back to a couple of eras. So, so prior, I, sorry, just
1: jump in. Did did it fail? Did, like, why would you say it failed? The gold, the gold system. Yeah, isn't it just that nations chose to come off it?
0: Well, there's a couple. There's a couple different failures in a row, right? So if you go back far enough, there's the there's this, the gold standard where uh-huh. countries are on their own gold standard. And part of it was that gold was centralized, right? So we can we can say it in hindsight, but also, for example, Henry Ford was writing about it in the 1920s, uh-huh. how gold was failing because it was being centralized and therefore was enabling war. And so part of why it failed was it was it was highly centralized, and then countries could debase their currency uh, and not make it redeemable for gold, and then sometimes repeg it to gold at a lower rate, or just not, not repeg it again. And so that was kind of the, the first failure of the gold system. And then the second one was. Kind of like the last ditch effort to maintain some semblance of it was the Bretton Woods system. So from 1944 to 1971, we had kind of a pseudo gold standard, which was that the dollar was backed by gold, uh, and then other currencies pegged themselves to the dollar. And again, this was designed. This was you know there was an actual agreement called the Bretton Woods. Uh, they, they you know they met in that area in New Hampshire and they actually put this together. And so this was not an accident. And that system didn't last that long because it was, from the beginning it was inherently unstable. Basically, again, we have. Banks are able to create money, essentially. By making loans, they create money. And gold is highly centralized. And gold was only redeemable to foreign creditors, official central banks. So Americans were barred from owning gold. They couldn't redeem dollars for gold. Uh, Foreign private sector couldn't redeem dollars for gold. But foreign official central banks could. That's what kind of maintained some degree of of repute with the system. Uh, And that eventually failed, essentially because you created too many dollars compared to how much gold the United States had. And so so foreign nations, including France and others, started to realize that I'd rather take the gold than hold these, these dollars and treasuries. And when that system was with, they basically called the bluff on it, that failed. So you can say that the ultimate reason was that gold was able to be centralized. That's, that's the biggest flaw. And then because it was able to be centralized, you could completely... Uh, untether the amount of currency units in the system compared to how much gold units are in the system, and therefore pegs break. There's kind of this, this saying in finance that eventually all pegs break, because if you don't have a, a meaningful way to maintain that peg, it, it's just artificial. It's like just, you can't just will it into existence. You actually, have the, you actually have to have the constraints in order to maintain the peg. So some pegs can last for a very long time. They can last for decades, but eventually imbalances build up in the system and it fails.
1: Right, so you can't have fractional reserve banking on a gold standard at least not in the
0: way they did it, right? Yeah. So you, you could have free banking on a gold standard, for example, That that's a more sustainable system. There's no kind of, it, it's still tricky to maintain, but there's no inherent reason why it has to fail, just that they, they eventually did fail. Uh, they kind of, you chip it away at one piece at a time, you start kind of centralizing it uh, and eventually it can fail. Uh, I think the, the the system that fails from the beginning is to have all gold centralized so that banks don't even hold their own gold anymore and then it's it's kind of fiat all the way down until you get to the very core of the system because then it only takes a handful of actions to sever that entirely. And so going back to your initial question, when we when we when you transfer from a from a gold system to a, a fiat system, you can imagine the chaos overnight. I mean, we never had an environment where virtually every other currency, other than you know Swiss franc, uh, just was rendered fiat uh, pretty much overnight. I mean, it's, there's still kind of a transition period where actually it, it was not just that 1971. Uh, proclamation. There was a, a couple-year transition period where they tried to salvage it to some extent. But essentially, you had a very abrupt transition where the entire world had no underlying basis for its, its currency anymore. Uh, obviously, you ran into inflationary issues. Then you had geopolitical issues because the United States, our oil production peaked in 1970. So we, we became increasingly reliant on foreign imports. And, of course, you had uh, wars in that area, and they could use their oil exportability as a tool. To, to basically have us not not choose one side or choose another side. And so in 1974, they basically salvaged that system. so, so basically under the Nixon administration, they made, made an agreement with the Saudis and eventually all of OPEC so that they would only sell the oil in dollars. So regardless of who buys it, if France buys it, if Japan buys it, whoever buys oil, That has, you know, basically has to import it from the Middle East and other countries. They have to do so in dollars, which means every country in the world that is not energy self-sufficient needs dollars. So they either can exchange their currency to get dollars, or they can start selling their goods and services in dollars as well. And so that's kind of an an intentional design choice. And the way we we were able to do that is because we, you know, the United States has by far the largest navy. Uh, in the world during that, especially during that time and ever since, we're also at the time, we we're the biggest commodity importer and the biggest economy. We st- we, st- we still are in some ways, but for example, China's catching up in some metrics and they've surpassed us in many commodity imports. But back then it made sense in some ways. And the United States perspective is one, they wanted to salvage the system that you know had chaos overnight. And two, there was still the Cold War going on. And so, for example, there was this policy where the United States did not want uh, Soviet Union to move into the Middle East and have access to all those diplomatic ties and the resources in that area. And so that was kind of a a way to try to have the United States secure that region. And so some analysts have argued, for example, Luke Roman, have argued that, you know, in the the first couple decades of that system, you could see why it made sense, right? There are trade-offs for it, uh, but some of the, the benefits, you know, the exorbitant privilege, it's been called... Makes a lot of sense. It basically gave the United States a very large advantage over the Soviet Union because we were the one country that could essentially print money to buy oil, and, and pretty much every other country either had to dig it out of the ground themselves, or they had to get dollars to to buy it. Uh, it's basically sell goods and services, get dollars, uh, and then they could buy the oil. And but after the Soviet Union fell in the '90s, that system became kind of a you know a, a system without a purpose. It was it was not really kind of supplying any sort of geopolitical interest anymore, other than maintaining the momentum that was already there and maintaining the structure for the people that were benefiting from it at the cost of those that were not benefiting from it anymore.
1: And with the dollar becoming the global reserve currency, that would make the dollar a stronger currency. Is that what led to the kind of collapse of manufacturing in the US?
0: It certainly played a big role. I mean, to some extent, we've seen it worldwide where obviously automation's been a big role. Anything that's kind of low cost and, and, and you know, low margin, you know, a lot of countries exported that type of stuff. For example, textile manufacturing. Uh, so the dollar's not to blame for every aspect of it, but if you look at the United States, it happened a lot more rapidly and thoroughly Than many of our developed peers and so for example in addition to exporting our cheap manufacturing we also export a lot of our advanced manufacturing whereas you see countries like germany or japan you know maintained a lot of their advanced manufacturing and this comes down to you know when every country needs dollars it as you point out it basically strengthens the dollar Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it stays strong all the time. We've actually had the dollar deteriorate against many other currencies because we have these underlying imbalances continuing to grow. But it means that any given one time, if you have the whole world demands dollars, basically, it's all this extra demand. And so we end up exporting dollars to essentially meet that demand. There's an artificial amount of extra demand for the dollar. And so most countries, when their currency gets too overvalued, they They start to get a trade imbalance. They get a trade deficit, and that eventually normalizes. Eventually their you know their exports become uncompetitive and they have a recession, and then you know the markets eventually kind of sort that out. Same thing if their currency gets too weak, uh, unless there's excessive uh, persistent manipulation, eventually it kind of goes back to that median point. But the United States, because of the system we we constru- constructed, has been able to maintain a multi-decade very large trade deficit longer than pretty much any other country out there. And so we, we've basically had the imbalances build up more and more without allowing that kind of natural error correction or meaner version to occur. And that's again it's by design. And so the, the major beneficiaries of the system are those you know close to the money printer. So if you work in DC, uh, you know not, not just the politicians but the lobbyists and all you know all the, all the ways to influence DC, the, the infrastructure around DC essentially as well as Wall Street, as well as very, very high margin businesses, like for example, info, information technology, healthcare, right? A lot of that, if you work in those types of fields, uh, you did very, very well. If you worked in fields that make things, right? So you manufacture, or if you work in jobs that are associated with that. So for example, there are, you know, if you were working at a restaurant that, that served, you know, upstate New York or somewhere else, somewhere in the Midwest, for example, a lot of that was deindustrialized. And so it wasn't just manufacturing jobs, it was all sorts of areas in the region. So you can kind of almost characterize it by industry as well as by region. Essentially, the coast benefited more or less at the cost of the center of the country. And so those imbalances have grown over time. And it can be very hard to pinpoint uh, for a lot of people, you know, where those causes are. They, They know that there's wealth concentration, but they don't know why. And so, again, some of this is global. But, for example, if you look at wealth concentration in the United States compared to many other co- developed countries, the United States is near the top of the list in terms of wealth concentration, in part because we've had these more deliberate policies that kind of gutted our you know working class and middle class type of jobs at the expense of, of kind of amplifying some of those really high-end jobs or the ones that kind of control the capital.
1: Right. So looking forward, uh, it feels like the petrodollar is starting to fracture. I was reading this morning about Russia and India... Agreeing to trade oil in uh, rupees and um, the, what's the Indian currency? Rupee. the ru- rupee? rupee, and um, rupees. They, they've agreed that uh, there has been previous talks. Of I mean, I think Iraq previously tried to uh, move to a petro euro. Uh, there's been talk of China and Russia and not uh, trading within the dollar. What, what would the impact of this be if the if the petrodollar was to collapse? Would that what would the impact be for the US?
0: Well, I mean, that's. There, I think there'd be multiple issues. So one, there's, there's two layers of it. There's medium exchange and store value. So if you, if they start to do medium exchange outside of the dollar and the SWIFT system, right, then mm-hmm. that reduces the United States's sanctionability and, and essentially hegemon status.
1: Well, the, the, so the Russia, the Russia-India deal was in response to sanctions to uh, certain Russians as well.
0: Yes, but one thing is that, so a lot of this has build, been building for a while. So, for example, if, um, there was a, a Bloomberg article back in 2019 that, that, uh, that I highlighted in my 2020 petrodollar article that showed that Russia and India have been already uh, going along that path. They basically agreed to increase their trade and to start pricing it outside of, of dollars. And so we actually already saw that building up ahead of time. And now, of course, there are certain catalysts like we're seeing today that can accelerate that. So it's not like it just went from zero to 100 uh this month this this has been building and growing for a while and it's already happening along the spectrum and so russia's kind of at the heart of the de-dollarization in the sense that you know they're a large oil provider so they that impacts the petrodollar system and they have massive trade with europe china uh, India and other countries, and so because they've been aggressively de-dollarizing, the fact that these out these other peers go along with it, uh, many of them either neutrally or that they also have an interest in doing it as well. Like China, for example, uh, they de-dollarize. Now, there's again, there's two layers of it. So one is the medium exchange, how they actually make the payments, because that can mean that the U.S. is unable to block them from trading. If they trade within a dollar-based system, the United States can block, you know, two countries from trading that have nothing to do with the United States. Which is kind of crazy if you think about it.
1: How do they block? What is the? Is it the specific transactions they can block? Because I mean, I don't actually understand how these dollar transfers happen.
0: So they cut them off from from the SWIFT system, right? And okay. there, I mean, there are people that they can go down that rabbit hole way way better than I can. But essentially, yeah. you know, if you're in the dollar-based system and you're and you're and you're using these these interbank transfers, uh, the United States has kind of veto power over that, essentially. Uh, and so basically they can sever them from the system. And and that happens in extreme cases, like with Iran, for example, they get completely cut off other times. It's more kind of a, you know, sanctioned without the nuclear option of just completely cutting them out of it. And so that's the medium of of exchange aspect. And then the other, uh, question is where they hold their foreign exchange reserves. Do they hold treasuries? For example or do they hold other things? And so Russia, for example, has decided not to really hold treasures anymore and to hold mostly euro denominated assets, as well as gold and some other types of assets. Um, and so they're, they're, they can go, you know, generally if you start transacting in other currencies, the natural result is that you're gonna have your reserves change as well. But they're, in, in theory, they're kind of two separate decisions that can be made, store of value and a medium of exchange. So,
1: so do you think that's why Russia has been increasing its holdings of gold?
0: I, I do. I mean, basically, I think they've been trying for a long time to make themselves more sanction resistant. Or, or you know, you can never really make yourself completely sanction immune in this world, given how dollarized everything is. But you, you know, there are some countries that if they're cut off from the SWIFT system, they're they're overnight they're in trouble. Um, whereas if you have enough of your trade denominated outside of dollars, and you have a lot of reserves, and Russia has quite a bit of reserves relative to the size of their GDP, um, then they can, they you know, they're very strong against that so the more self-sufficient they are and then the more outside of the dollar system they already are the, be- the better they are so russia is actually arguably one of the strongest countries when it comes to being able to withstand uh heavy sanctions
1: and so how is iran able to trade and just to add to that a friend of mine went to iran once and told me they had no idea that they wouldn't have access to any of the banking system there their visa or mastercard wouldn't work um, and it was a bit of a problem getting into the country because they had didn't have they had the dollars they had with them, which wasn't a lot, but they had nothing else.
0: Well, yeah, I mean that's it's you don't think about it until you are without it, yeah. right? Things that we take for granted that uh, they can be shut, shut off like a switch if 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 basically that country's outside of the you know the the global order, uh, either for you know it could be that that country's crazy or that that country's doing something that that powers don't like. So mm-hmm. there's there's a range of reasons, and. When you look at iran specifically you know they've they've, there's been a couple different payment options i mean europe tried i believe it's called instex where they wanted to do euro denominated payment rails and that didn't seem like it really went anywhere i was kind of surprised by that uh they've also they've been one of the early dabblers in bitcoin right because you have that permissionless payment aspect Mm -hmm. and that's one i mean that that comes with any technology anytime there's a new technology generally some of the more unsavory characters are the ones that gravitate towards it first now I, I like to use the example of beepers pagers you know when they came out uh truck dealers yeah drug dealers loved it and it of course you can make the argument like all oh, at these pages and beepers is just enabling drug dealers when of course they you know there are all sorts of of professions and reasons uh, for people that want to use them but naturally criminals and there's different types of criminals right there's there's you know objectively bad criminals like murderers and and human traffickers and things like that and then there's Criminals that, you know, if you're if there's some countries where protesting the government is a crime and you're a criminal now, right? So, well, so, a few years
1: ago here, buying weed would have been a crime and people are still in jail for selling weed, yet it's legal in large parts of the country.
0: Exactly. There's a whole, yeah, there's a whole spectrum. There's ones that are obviously wrong, there are ones that, you know, morals change over time. And then there are other ones where, like, literally they'd be considered heroes in other countries mm-hmm. or patriots, or whatever. But in their country, they're considered criminals. And so naturally people that have those specific problems for better or worse, you know, on, the, on the good side, you could be you know, cypherpunks or, or human rights activists. On The other side, maybe you are criminals or kind of a violent rogue state, whatever the case may be. Those types of, of entities are more likely to gravitate to this because that, that's generally what they need. They, you know, payment is not something that comes easy to some of those groups.
1: All right, so we tend to have two, two slash three superpowers, certainly uh, the US and China. Now and Russia are kind of maybe like a half superpower. Maybe people consider them a superpower because of their uh, nuclear arsenal, but it's essentially three superpowers pulling against each other. There seems to be a lot of alignment between Russia and uh, China because they're both anti American. Um, what's, what's the understanding of China within this kind of triangle of countries and how they use the dollar? And, and are they incentivized to move off the dollar as well? Do you think there's going to be a push for them to? encourage people to be using their CBDC for example.
0: I I think so. They so depending on how far back you want to go with China,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's, it's way mean, back. So if you go really if you go super far back, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, pre pre-modern history, they were a global power. They were a major, you know, one of the biggest, if not at times the biggest power. And, you know, you can go into the opium wars for example, they were ravaged by the west, right? So you know, we, we tend to think of the evils that China does today, and they do a lot of evils, and I'm, I'm always happy to criticize them. But if, if you look far back enough, the tables were turned where the West was, was more so on the villainous side. So it's, you can almost paint it like a movie where a villain uh, has this, like, sympathetic reason of why they became the way they are. So if you look at it from their perspective, they've been bullied by the West for centuries, and so they have this very strong desire to rise up and be self-sufficient. And of course that's i mean that's a noble goal but of course then some of the ways they do it are gross human rights violations um and so with when it comes to china they've had this period where over the past several decades where they've kind of opened their economy to the rest of the world more they've very much benefited from the dollar-based system okay um, and so generally the advantage of a, of a of a poor country which they were decades ago is that they can be very very cheap labor and they can become an export powerhouse and so when they opened up to the world and they were led into the World Trade Organization, they benefited very much from the system. And there's something called the the, the middle income trap, where when a country's trying to develop, you know, it, it's really hard to make the transition from your, your, basically the cheap labor to advanced nation, right? There's actually very few countries that kind of make that full leap. They often get stuck in the middle because they get to the point where they're no longer the lowest cost producer. So right. they start losing some of their export advantages, but they can't quite keep up with say the you know the the most advanced nations in information technology or advanced engineering things like that and so they end up stagnating somewhere in the middle around that range and so china's trying to navigate that gap where they had these multiple decade periods of being on the low end of that now they're in the middle part of that they they have a big enough population where they have an obvious military power they are are Uh, pretty advanced in in AI and other areas of technology. They're trying to shore up their semiconductor uh, technology, which is not one of their stronger suits. Um, And so they have a lot of incentive uh, over time to become more self-sufficient. And if you look specifically at the dollar system, one of their biggest weaknesses is that they are very reliant on commodity imports. They don't have much oil. They have a lot of coal and and other uh, uh, commodities, but there's many commodities that they have to uh, import, including many types of food and energy. Um, And so, you know, for them to be sanctioned, for example, would be devastating. If they were just cut off from the dollar-based system, uh, you know, they'd be, in in my view, probably less resilient against that than than something like Russia, right? Because Russia is more commodity secure. Um, And so China would be in trouble. And so they've they've spent many years kind of slowly kind of turning this gap. And so Mm -hmm. one was back in 2013. They announced that it no longer makes sense for them to keep taking all of their dollar surpluses. And reinvesting them in the treasuries, because the United States' system over time has been essentially that we're happy to run trade deficits with you, but take those dollars and go ahead and, and help help us fund our deficits, right? So, so hold hold dollars in treasuries as your reserves, and so Saudi Arabia did that, Japan did that, Europe did that. They all went through these periods where they they grew very rapidly. Um, they were the the big you know exporters, and they would hold it in dollars. And China went through that period as well. They amassed over a trillion dollars in, in treasuries. And eventually, they said, you know, we have enough. Um, it's not really in our interest to keep buying these things, especially, uh, you know, we saw the global financial crisis. These yields are, are, are you know, poor compared to inflation. Um, and so we're going to start doing other things. And then they announced the Belt and Road Initiative. So essentially, what we've seen is, that do, you know, China uses a lot of their dollars.
1: Sorry, just to jump in there very quickly. Is that why the Fed has had to start buying treasuries themselves? I think it's part
0: of it. We've seen a drop-off in foreign demand led by China. Now, it's not, you know, you see headlines like foreigners dump treasuries. They haven't dumped treasuries. They, they still hold more treasuries than they used to, but the percentage of total US treasuries owned by the foreign sector has been shrinking because they've not been buying treasuries as rapidly as as we've been issuing them. Right. And so generally any country, when they get over a certain debt amount as a percentage of GDP, the central bank becomes the major buyer of, of their government debt. And the United, the United States is no different in this case because foreigners have dried up their purchases to some extent.
1: Right, okay.
0: And so with China, they've been more specific about it where they said, okay, instead of buying treasuries, we're going to start using our dollars to make loans to different countries on the world, uh, help build out infrastructure to help cement China's, you know, hub, you know, basically there's a big trade partner along Eurasia and into Africa and you know around the whole pretty much the whole world essentially. Um, and also to secure commodities. So they'll, they'll invest in commodity projects around the world that they have rights to. Um, and so they're essentially taking dollars and putting them into various types of hard assets um, and, and basically doing kind of that, almost that type of, of financial colonialism that the United States and, and the United Kingdom have done in the past. They're, they're doing a similar approach now. Uh, and so they're kind of rising to that superpower status, despite the fact that their GDP per capita is still kind of in that middle income trap.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by CASA, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Io. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now as you know, UX is super important to me, so when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app, and you know what, they crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Um, I was talking to my brother this morning and he was explaining to me that the Belt and Road initiative is itself starting to fracture now because some of the nations they've been loaning money to can't afford to pay back. Um, And uh, there has been this uh, idea that that would give China a claim on perhaps those ports or infrastructure projects they've built. But some of these countries are turning around and just saying no. Um, And also there was an unveiling of Europe's Competitor to the Belt and Road Initiative, a three hundred forty billion dollar, was it billion or billion euro investment in similar projects worldwide. What do you what do you make of that? Do you think the West was slow to catch on with the Belt and Road Initiative and that threat of that soft imperialism?
0: I I think we were. I, I think we basically maybe didn't expect it to go to occur so rapidly out of China. You know there are geopolitical experts that can probably go into the background discussions way better than I could. Yeah. I, I mostly can look at the numbers and say this is what's happening. Here's what's been said by the different countries. China has been in some ways pretty clear about their intentions with this, at least externally. Um, it's, it's not really been a secret. They've not been like hiding this. It's not really. A, it's a, it's an open fact that it's happening, and so you know they've also been experimenting with you know using, I don't know what blockchain it was, but they were using blockchains to basically do purchases of like iron from, from foreign uh, uh, producers of it. And so they've, they've been experimenting with ways where they wanna be as, so it's a, it's a couple steps. One is they, they they stopped using treasure as a store of value, or at least they stopped adding to their treasure. They still have them, but they're not adding to them anymore. And then two, they wanna find ways to, to have a medium of exchange that is outside of the SWIFT system. They don't want another country to be able to cut them off from buying commodities and, and and trading with their partners. And so, early phases of that included all sorts of testing. They they you know they they you know have like a Singapore technology firm help them out, and they would do these these technology uh, experiments. And now, of course, the headlines are the CBDCs, where they basically can have programmable money, and they can trade with some of their trading partners uh, outside of the SWIFT system. Uh, and so to the extent that that continues working in, with them. And they have a lot of clout because they're such a large trading partner with most of the world, right? So over the past 20 years, the United States used to be the biggest trading partner with most countries. Uh, and that's shifted more and more towards China, where the majority of countries, their their individual biggest trading partner is China. Um, and so the the fact that they have all those pieces together gives them a pretty significant shot at being able to de-dollarize their payment systems. And we're seeing early signs of it. So. A lot of it's centered around Russia in the sense that Russia trades with Europe, China, and India, and some other countries now, um, either completely or partially outside a dollar based system. That, that can include euros. So you can have an interesting thing where Russia and China tr- uh, trade using o- euros. You can also have their local currencies, like Russia and India, they can use their local currencies to do payments.
1: Do we know how much progress China's made with the CBDC?
0: It seems like a lot. They've, they've been actively testing it uh, because, you know, lately we see in the past year or so western central banks are talking about you know exploring it whereas china i mean from what i've seen they've been testing it you know researching it i should say as far back as 2014. you know once you, once bitcoin was around for a while and then once you had the emergence of, of stable initial stable coins uh, i think they woke up to that pretty quickly uh, and so they've been testing that for a long time they've already actively tested their cbdc in many many cities. It works in that sense. I think they're, you know, they're still trying to roll out, you know, all the details and make sure that the rollout process goes smoothly. Um uh, yeah, they're pretty far along on that.
1: Do we, Do we know what blockchain they use them? I believe they're using their own
0: custom one, but don't quote me on that because okay. I'm not the. Uh, I, I've read about how some of the details work. Like so, for example, with, with between two phones, you can make a transfer offline. You don't have to have internet for it, which is important when you're in like rural China. Uh, so essentially, this kind of competes with cash for example, doesn't really, you know, there's different types of CBDCs. People assume that if you have a CBDC, it means like banks don't exist anymore, just directly from the central bank, whereas it's not always like that. And so for example, their approach, at least initially, is banks are still a thing, but for example, instead of trading cash in a context where you might use physical cash, you would use this CBDC instead. And then also it, it can be useful for those international trading partners, where they say, okay, you know, if you wanna buy our technology, uh, you know, they make a lot of equipment. They say, okay, you you buy it with these CBDC, so we'll we'll buy for, we'll buy commodities from you using the CBDC, and then you can use those to buy our technology. So basically, they have that trade happening in that in that currency. If they set it up, if they if they basically meet their goals,
1: is the idea to completely replace the financial infrastructure with a CBDC in China? Do you imagine a scenario where if tourists are coming in, they would have to exchange their currency? Or do you think they will run the CBDC alongside uh, Visa and Mastercard payment networks?
0: Well, I mean, they already exclude a lot of Western payment systems. right? Um, so there are a lot of people that travel to China and report that, it's, I mean, a lot of the countries that developed later, like China and India, for example, they leapfrogged a lot of the credit card type of payment systems and they went right to mobile payments. Um, And so in China, you have those two big mobile payment providers, and then you'll add CBDCs to that. Again, it doesn't fully replace those, at least not in the current kind of vision of it. It doesn't replace those, but it's it's another way to pay. And so essentially, when tourists go to China, they all, in, in many areas, they need to use their local payment systems. And that, you know, further strengthens it. But I think the international version is the one to really focus on because it means that, you know, their ability to transact internationally they can have that kind of, you know, quote unquote, trusted way to do a transaction without going through the dollar-based system.
1: Okay, so just trying to imagine in our crypto world that China has its CBDC and Russia wants to trade with China, they want them to use that CBDC. Do, Do we imagine a scenario where Russia has its version of the wallet and they are holding their value in a local wallet within Russia, or is it more of an IOU? I don't, I can't even imagine the infrastructure for this. There are
0: certainly people that can go into way more detail, but essentially, I mean, right now, you know, you're even in the current infrastructure, you're reliant on the other country acknowledging it. And so, for example, there have been politicians that talked about selectively defaulting on the treasuries that China holds, Um, which is interesting because that, I mean, that that premise tells China, don't keep increasing your treasuries because Mm. you know you have a vulnerability. China's treasuries are you know only money good if the United States decides that they are. Um, and so, essentially, at the end of the day, most of these systems rely on some degree of trust. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not completely trustless. And so, however they set that up in, 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 you know, the technology terms, essentially, Russia, yes, they could have a wallet and, and, and go along with that system. Um, and essentially, the way it would work is China says, okay, we want to be able to use this currency to buy your oil. And then you can go ahead, you have that currency in your reserves now, and you can go ahead and use that currency to buy some of our, our you know, tech equipment. Uh, you know, China's export surveillance equipment, for example, a lot of countries like, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be, but all sorts of phones and, 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 and basically the broad types of electronics and all sorts of equipment. And so there's, they both have trade that one wants and China can say, let's let's use this currency. And there's, you know, depending on the country that they have clout with, you know, if it's a very small nation and that they're very reliant on trade with China, you know, China has a better probability of getting them to use that. Whereas maybe Russia says, we'll use a little bit of that but we also want to use euros we also want to use rubles for example um, because they have some cloud as well um so it really depends on on the individual countries in question
1: but it also therefore puts pressure on china to maintain a a stable currency as best possible yes
0: and and in recent years relative to many other currencies they have and so there was a long period where they were holding stable and they were actually strengthening for a while then they went on this devaluation um back in like 2015. But it wasn't as large as some people would guess. I mean, it's, it wasn't like this one of those emerging market currency spirals. They did this kind of targeted devaluation. And then there is this period where it was, it's been strengthening since then. It, you know, this, this year, for example, the dollar had a relatively strong year uh, compared to many currencies, especially compared to the euro and the yen. Um, but, but China's currency is actually up a little bit compared to the dollar. And if you look at, you know, some of the responses to the pandemic, for example, China did not do massive fiscal stimulus. They did not increase their money supply very rapidly. Um, they have some of the better yield to inflation ratio out there for their government debt. It's, you know, when you look at it quantitatively, it's pretty attractive sovereign bonds compared to some of the other types of sovereign bonds that are out there. And so they actually do seem, this again goes back to the middle income trap, where they, they previously had an incentive to weaken their currency, uh, because they wanted to have that export advantage. But now that they're a couple factors are coming together. One is they, you know, they want to make sure they can secure commodities. so that that means they want to have you know their currency strong enough. Two, they're having a demographics issue that's pretty w- well known that you know mm-hmm. they have a, an aging cliff that is is faster than many other countries. And that's not good for an uh, an export nation. You want to start shifting to a consumption nation when you get to that, or at least a more balanced type of approach. So I think the fact that they, They kind of got everything they're going to get out of being a cheap exporter and now they want to have advanced technology they want to be a little bit more consumption driven and they want to be able to buy outside the dollar and so actually you are starting to see a more stable currency out of them uh, and it does seem to be one of their priorities where they're willing to let companies fail and they're willing to not do a lot of fiscal stimulus in the face of problems if it means maintaining you know a pretty strong currency.
1: Is there currently currency at any risk from the uh, property sector within China? Because we know that's pretty fragile right now.
0: Well, absolutely. Any, any currency is uh, vulnerable to the overall economic prospects of that country. And so one of the biggest, so before we mentioned one of China's biggest weaknesses is the fact that they're very reliant on commodity imports. Mm-hmm. Their other big weakness is they have a very large real estate bubble. Um, basically, the, you know, Chinese citizens for multiple reasons including cultural reasons invest heavily in real estate many of them when they have you know they already have a home they go ahead and then they get a second and a third property um, and that's also spilled into foreign markets where they they buy uh, Canadian property and Australian property especially but multiple countries they, there's a lot of Chinese buyers kind of propping up those markets um, and so and th- those markets become very expensive for that local economy when we compare them to Chinese property you can actually see why Chinese they want to diversify partially because the properties are not necessarily less expensive when they go abroad and two because they have you know they have, you know it's from their perspective they want they want some properties outside of china um and so i would say that basically a slowdown in their real estate sector is a really big deal um now it's something that it's inevitable so china's actually been one of the better countries at deflating bubbles gradually they've had these kind of rolling bubbles and because they're relatively top down and because most of the debts are denominated in their own currency right so they do have dollar-based bonds but it's not super large relative to their reserves or relative to their gdp a lot of that is internal and so they're able to shuffle the books around and kind of diffuse things slowly now the risk is that one time they won't be able to do that and you have you know the big quote-unquote china collapse that a, a bunch of china bears are looking for but so far for a very long time they've, they've been able to go through these cycles and we're kind of seeing how they navigate that now it's certainly a risk because you know if, if the if the country's facing inflation from food and and energy uh, and and basically having there's, there's you know there's been reports of power outages things like that because they're not able to always get the amount of commodities they need and then two if you have real estate not doing very well um, that can sow public discontent uh, and so they do have that they're threading that needle and so we're gonna see how that plays out it, it, so far it seems like 2021 was the year of kind of crackdown. Uh, and I think what they're aiming for is to have 2022 be the year of the rebound because it's a politically important year for them. Uh, so I think that they've they've gotten a lot of the pain out ahead of time. And then we're going to see how well they, they do that U-turn.
1: Polit- politically important because Chairman Xi has to reconsider whether he's going to stay in power. I don't know the details, but... Yeah, essentially. Did, does he just choose whether to say about?
0: Well, I mean, they have the whole po- Politburo. Um, and it really comes down to individuals kind of how much power they can consolidate. And he's been able to consolidate quite a bit of power, mm-hmm. where he's not officially some sort of supreme leader, but for a lot of intents and purposes, he has quite a lot of power. To, uh, and I think the consensus look, is looking like he's going to have this, this you know extended time in leadership, which, which goes against a lot of Chinese recent history. Um, and so basically that's kind of a big decision point for, for China, uh, and basically the leaders in charge there. And so a lot of things have to be going well in China from his perspective to make sure he gets that. So he has to make sure that the elites are content enough with his rule, that, the, the, there's no widespread public issues, uh, and that there's been no recent crises. Um, uh, and so if they get a lot of the pain out ahead of time, and then they have that really strong year going into that, I think from his perspective, that increases his odds of, his, of that ongoing leadership going smooth.
1: I wonder if we'll ever see a scenario where, similar to dollarized nations, we'll have, what would you say, one-eyes, one-eyes-eight, one-eyes nations? <laughs> I, I think it's possible. I think it's it's somewhat premature
0: to assume that's necessarily going to happen, but I think it's, the further this develops, it's, it's not an outlandish thing that it could happen. And people often think that, that, You know, reserve currency has to be binary. Like there's only there's you either have the reserve currency, you don't, whereas in reality it's somewhat of a spectrum. So the United States has quote unquote the reserve currency. It's it's very dominant. But there's you know, the euro and and the yuan are also these contenders where they're not really in a position to just replace the dollar and become the you know, the the new kind of you know, just by far dominant global currency. But (coughs) but really what they're aiming for is to be regional reserve currencies. They want to be able to trade with enough of their partners for key things they need in their currency. And so you, I think you cer- certainly could see, for example, maybe some small African countries become yuanized, if that's a word. Um, but <laughs> it's not something I have.
1: Yeah. Hmm? I think we just invented it. I think
0: we invented it. it may, you know, I mean, petro yuan is a word, so...
1: And Bitcoinized is a word. Bitcoinized is a word. Yeah, we can do it. I can't really say it. Yuanized, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting looking over the next decade is whether we see the consolidation of currencies. Um, We have dollarized nations, but that really is a decision on the country itself, whether it wants to go into a dollar standard. Um, And again, I'm way out of my field of uh, knowledge, but how a country does that. But in this world where we now have Bitcoin and digital currencies, uh, one of the conversations or one of the things I put on the table with Nick Carter is in a country like Turkey, you know, the currency has collapsed and people have talked about um you know it's, it's you know bitcoin is a great lifeboat for people there but really yes to an extent but also it's volatile so it's not really useful day to day and actually for a lot of people there maybe the tether or any form of stable coin the tether any form of stable coin is a better currency to have and you could possibly see this kind of black market or bottom-up uh, dollarization of a nation just through the local people saying we're not having this anymore like if i was in turkey i would be converting my lira to both bitcoin and and a digital dollar right now rather than holding a collapsing currency
0: yeah no i think so basically yeah it's it also there's cultural elements so i mean there's multiple local options too they can buy gold Mm -hmm. as long as they're not blocked from doing so it's easier to do that with gold than, than with something like bitcoin uh or even even stable coins um and also real estate but again that can be a liquid and you know it's not accessible for, for everyone and so I do think that things like Bitcoin and, and dollar stable coins are another avenue for them and so depending on someone's needs, there's all these different options. In, in the long run of course stable coins are not an ideal option because you're still you're losing purchasing power over time right so you're you're not really getting paid interest and yet the dollar is becoming worth less in terms of real assets most year after year after year after year, sometimes at a higher rate, like you've seen in 2021. And so it's not necessarily something you want to store the bulk of your wealth in, but sure, absolutely. When there's like, when there's, when your own currency is falling rapidly, um, you know, the fact that the dollar is inflating at like 6% is come on way better. Well, I mean, official CPI, official. right? So when they, when they can jump onto the dollar and hold that until they figure out what they want to do and they want to put in other assets and they just want to hold that for like 6-12 months, it makes perfect sense. So as a percentage of what they're doing, it absolutely makes sense for them to get into stable coins in many cases.
1: But do you see that scenario of, of currencies consolidating around the world? I, I, well, we, I think we've been seeing it for a while. Okay.
0: Um, and I do think that's probably a trend that's going to continue.
1: Okay. So the role of Bitcoin in all of this is that it's obviously banned in China um, and it feels like uh, it's an opportunity for the US. I was talking to Austin Hill about this beforehand. Uh, but by the US being open to Bitcoin, they're actually open to the people of the US being able to hold something that appreciates in value, which could raise up the wealth and the strength of the US itself. And I know the regulators have to walk a careful tightrope of protecting the dollar, also wanting to have mass surveillance. But it feels like it would be a geopolitical a smart geopolitical move for the U.S. to be quite friendly towards Bitcoin.
0: I think it's a lot of people take for granted that the current system benefits the U.S. And as we discussed, in many cases, it does. It basically extends our hegemonic reach, but at the cost of our own domestic vibrancy, right? So there's a knee-jerk reaction for politicians, I think, to defend the dollar system when if they go down the rabbit hole, they realize that for maybe 90% of Americans, the dollar system is not really working for them anymore. So there's that. And then two, even alongside that system, as you pointed out, there are a lot of benefits from being the center of Bitcoin, uh, basically having a, a lot of the hash rate and a lot of the holdings of Bitcoin among your your private companies and private individuals. And so I do think it makes sense that you know you want to keep that culture of inviting invitation, being the hub that companies can come and develop on. So you get all the tax revenue and all the employment from the, the jobs around the space, as well as the wealth that can come if that ends up being the correct move if, if bitcoin goes up five or tenfold in market capitalization and the americans hold a very large chunk of it that obviously benefits the united states and so from regulators perspective they don't like the fact that you can do permissionless payments they want to build to surveil and block transactions that they don't want maybe not quite to the extent of china but most countries on the world want some degree of that uh, that is usually more so than what, what most private citizens would think is acceptable to say what they can or cannot do with their own money um, and so they, I think they are walking that that tightrope. But I do think I mean, from if I was a, a political leader, I would absolutely embrace Bitcoin because Bitcoin, Bitcoin, yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin, misspoke. Bitcoin
1: is uh, the the UK CBDC.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll see how far they get with that. But
1: yeah, I've got a comment on that. I'll come back to that. Well, I mean, I'll say it now. I, one of the things I worry about the CBDCs is that we benefit from a fractured financial system. In that, if one part breaks, you can use the other part. If my you know, Visa goes down, you can use your Mastercard, or you can use, uh, you can use um, Amex, or you can use cash, or you can use Bitcoin. But a system that trends toward one centralized CBDC, I don't feel like it is it puts the whole economy at risk.
0: Absolutely, because the whole economy can shut down if that stops working. And we've seen, for example, Fedwire can go down. It's not unheard of um and so these 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 central systems can go down um and it can impact everything i mean we've seen for example just in recent days amazon web services had an issue and countless businesses that you'd have no idea that they go down you don't you don't realize that they're running on amazon web services imagine if they had 100 percent market share right and so it's the same thing with currencies and that's why i mean most people that travel a lot it's nice to have you know physical currency with you just think in case, you know, you never know when just your car is not going to work for some mm-hmm. reason. You never want to be without payment. And if, if you're 100% reliant on centralized, you know, internet-based technology, that's, that's an inherent vulnerability.
1: Do you think we'll, we'll get to the point with Bitcoin where the long-term vision that some people have had that you know, banks will settle in Bitcoin or your trade will be settled in Bitcoin? Do you, do you see that as something that could happen? Well, I think the the
0: longer it goes, the less outlandish that sort of scenario gets. I mean, if you were to call that when Bitcoin is 500, it looks sillier than when you call it when Bitcoin's at 50,000, for example. Uh, You know, As roughly a trillion dollar asset, it's becoming meaningful on the macro scale. Uh, I think if Bitcoin continues to get adoption and continues to grow in market capitalization and liquidity, uh, it becomes increasingly useful as a reserve asset, right? So you start with the kind of the, the fringe countries, the ones that... Are either kicked out of the dollar-based system, or they're already dollarized and they wanna, you know, like, like El Salvador for example, they wanna do this kind of this move to attract all the tourists, they attract the capital, uh, lower remittance costs, b- b- a bunch of reasons. Even even just you know, put their name on the global stage in a way that that it wasn't a year ago. Um, so there's those incentives. But basically, the bigger it gets, the more useful Bitcoin becomes as a reserve asset. It becomes another way for russia for example to to make themselves more sanction resistant and again i mean you might not always agree with the countries that that might use it but if you understand their own incentives you can see why they might become interested in that technology and so i do think that the the bigger it grows essentially this uncensorable public ledger that's quite secure is attractive for individuals companies and nation states in many cases and of course, it has to get big enough to attract those larger pools before they they start taking it seriously.
1: It feels like there's an incentive for everyone to use it, but for, for different reasons. Absolutely, I mean, basically,
0: <laughs> going literally from cypherpunks to uh, you know unsavory types of, uh, of either countries or individuals, or just people in Turkey that want to protect their purchasing power, uh, or people in the United States that want to protect their purchasing power. Basically, there's there's one of the common problems worldwide is how to store your value, how to store your wealth, right? Especially in this era where we're essentially in financial oppression. So interest rates are below the inflation rate. You know, usually in, in terms of the official inflation rate, let alone whatever the quote unquote real inflation rate is, uh, you're not really keeping up with, with the creation of currency. Um, and so there's natural, people are monetizing all sorts of things. They're monetizing art. More than they used to, they're monetizing their homes, so you have you have home value to income ratios going up dramatically. You're monetizing stocks, where you say, I don't even know what the stocks do. I just want to shove money into an index fund because it's better than cash. So we monetize all these other assets, and so the world pretty much has a store of value problem, and it becomes worse for emerging markets that don't have access to a lot of you know they, you know you can't buy fine art, you can't you know real estate is trickier, you can't buy the S P 500, and so Bitcoin is one that they can all hold on their mobile phone. And then, of course, you have countries like Iran that say, okay, we want to be able to buy things if we want to. And there's this permissionless payment rail that we could use. So, there's also pretty much any actor out there uh, can use Bitcoin for a purpose.
1: What a time to be alive, Lynn. Um, You know, it's not all good. There's a lot of scary things happening. But we're we're living in this world of potential currency wars or, or actual currency wars between major superpowers. But at the same time, any individual can exit the system because. 13 years ago, somebody launched a protocol that's become uh, a, this decentralized currency of the world. It's, if, if you'd explained this to somebody 15 years ago, if you'd explained Bitcoin, said, yeah, but we're gonna have a new currency that's gonna come along. We don't know who the creator's gonna be. It's gonna be completely decentralized. It'll be the fastest growing currency in the world, and uh, the governments can't switch it off. People have thought you're fucking mad.
0: <laughs> and it's it's funny, because if you look at old quotes, There are people that like were Bitcoiners before that Bitcoin existed. Like if you look at Hayek, for example, he's like the only way that that you're going to have good money again is if someone can introduce a sly, you know, roundabout way to separate money from state. He's basically describing Bitcoin before it existed. Uh, Again, you know, Henry Ford talked about a currency of energy, and and that gold was too centralized.
1: Sovereign individual.
0: A lot of people, you know, discuss this thing, and so it's it's kind of remarkable that it happened. And I think we can envision now. Two very different futures. So we know that that money is going to be increasingly digital, uh, more so than it already is. Right now, it's we think of it as digital. People joke and they're like, "Well, the dollar's already digital." It's like, "Well, it also runs on those very old pipes, for lack of a better word." There's this old legacy infrastructure, and then you know we we interact with it in a digital way, but it still goes through these centralized pipes. And, and stable coins are quite different ways to transmit value, and so obviously money is going more digital, and it becomes: Is it going to be more State and surveillance controlled, right? So you, almost like using Satoshi's invention against him, where this technology can enable CBDCs, it can enable like uh, essentially highly regulated private stable coins that are, might as well be CBDCs. For example, they can blacklist any any addresses they want, they can block transactions. You have that approach, um, or you have Bitcoin where it's kind of a defense against you know, nations that are maybe being improper. And it's one of those things where if you if you're in a developed market it, it, it can sound almost anarch like like you're like you're an anarchist for example if you're like you want to t- separate money from state um, but it's it's not easy it's not hard to envision it if you live in Russia or you live in China or you live in Nigeria for example right there's been there's been cases that have been I think at this point well documented by the media where for example Putin's opposition that is heavily repressed Begins using Bitcoin uh, because they can keep their payment. They can get donations. They can they can send payments. You see it happening in Nigeria, where these protest groups pop up. They you know they're protesting police violence, um, and then their bank accounts get frozen, uh, and they can resort to Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, there's been analysis showing, I think from Freedom House, showing that over the past 10, 15 years, the world's becoming slightly more authoritarian uh, around the margins. We had this period from, say, the 80s, 90s. We started entering this period of of liberalization we had declining authoritarianism but now it's on the rise again and i think also that the pandemic showed that even in developed markets we have we brought up all these new debates about human rights and, and restrictions on mobility and and things like that and so in that type of world where technology can increasingly be used to surveil and control populations That there's this technology that can actually also enable them, and I think we can envision two different futures depending on which path ends up winning.
1: Well, centralized versus decentralized. We uh, actually released a show today uh, that I recorded with Mark Moss. The title will seem hyperbolic, but it was uh, Bitcoin. The what was it? The fate for the future of humanity, or the fight for the future of humanity. Um, where it's, it's essentially a world that's becoming more centralized. The only way to fight back against that is decentralization. And therefore, what is the best tool we have? Well, it is Bitcoin. And and I, it sounds hyperbolic. And I, I think for some people, aren't even in the world of Bitcoin. They think this is absurd. But it might be right.
0: I think what people miss is that history goes through these big cycles, these big pendulum swings. Yep. And people naturally have recency bias. When they look over the past 30, 40 years, and they can't envision the world being any different, Whereas that 30 and 40 year period looks crazy compared to people in the in the prior 30 or 40 year period. Yep. It happens with, for example, wage uh, like laborers and capital. You you see this political shift back and forth between who has more of the power. You know, sometimes you hit an extreme, you have a revolution, or you just kind of, you know, have a, a a kind of a partial revolution and, and have like a, a popular swing back. So there's that, there's that, that keeps changing. As we talked about, these monetary systems keep changing. So you go from gold standard to failed gold standard to Bretton Woods to petrodollar system. You go through these, these changes over time. And so right now, we've been in this kind of period of increasing centralization, increasing digital, uh, digitization. And if you go back to, for example, sci-fi writers, they've been kind of forecasting this, talking about that the more technology exists, the more it enables governments to have kind of a almost a perfect authoritarianism. Like imagine Soviet Russia... If they had the surveillance that is able that you have today, including financial surveillance and surveillance blocking, right? That's essentially what China is kind of moving towards in some ways. And so I think if people think internationally, some of those things seem less crazy. Even if their local country might be benign uh, in the relative sense, I think it's one of those things where you can you can like government, but still view that, well, at the end of the day, the government should be more afraid of the people than the people are f- afraid of the government right so it's always good to have that tool that kind of keeps powers in check to avoid that kind of you know absolute power the ability to stop transactions block anything surveil anything and then there's no checks anymore
1: so what about Ethereum? then could that be uh world money i saw you uh wrote another article i read it <laughs> that was an epic article um I'll direct people to it, but you uh, did a review of proof of work versus proof of stake. I don't think I can let you leave today without just touching on that very very quickly. Uh, firstly, uh, were they mean to you again?
0: Not really. I mean, I think... I,
1: they were last time.
0: They were. Uh, well, it depends. It's, every community has individuals. So some people engage constructively, other ones engage aggressively. And my overall approach, I you know, I try to characterize it as there's Bitcoin and then there's everything else is essentially security. It's either like literally security or it's essentially very equity like right so i i generally don't go so far as to say that every other application of blockchain is you know worth absolutely nothing it's not worth exploring you know i'm not i'm not on that end of the extreme but i don't view them as money for sure i view them more like equity platforms and many of them use scammy tactics some more again there's a spectrum so Mm -hmm. you you have outright scams and then you have well-meaning projects that that are advancing things In ways that maybe bitcoin has been slow to right so in a sense they're kind of these little trial areas um but there's a difference between that and money right so you have kind of this startup equity like thing versus sound money and so essentially the downside of any any blockchain other than bitcoin is that they're not sufficiently decentralized so bitcoin starts with high decentralization and then makes really rough trade-offs to have that decentralization. Essentially, blockchains are really inefficient databases. And in order to have it be decentralized, at least with the technology that we currently are available, uh, that we know of, you have to have a very small and tight database so that it can be held very, very peer-to-peer and that it's resistant to any sort of centralized attack services. You don't want to be like the White Walker army where if you take out the, the Night King, they all die, right? <laughs> you don't want that. That's how most blockchains are constructed. They have a Night King. And if you t- if you take out the night king, the war is over. Whereas you want to have it so that you're a zombie apocalypse where there's every every unit is completely in- autonomous. There's no centralized attack surfaces. And so Bitcoin is is you know it's maybe not perfect, but it's by far the closest thing we have to a truly decentralized system. Whereas all those other ones make they they make fewer of the trade offs that Bitcoin did, and therefore they have these bigger attack surfaces. And so Essentially, some of them in the long arc of time, when we when we get through periods of speculation and we see what technology sticks around, maybe blockchains are useful for certain applications. Um, but the more they're useful for, in many cases, at least on the base layer, uh, the more prone they are to centralization, being changeable, and therefore not really being that that kind of money for enemies or global money or global collateral, whatever you want to call it.
1: Or ultrasound money.
0: Well, I think that's that whole that whole thing popped up because you know essentially if you if you if you define how sound your money is by what the inflation rate is currently like you can imagine two systems imagine for example a country like singapore says we're going to maintain this money supply and then they do it for a few years and they say we're ultra sound money now but it's still the case that at any given time if you have a change in leadership for example you could change your monetary policy whereas something like gold for example you know if you look over the past century there's they never really made more than like 2% of new gold per year right it, it pretty much no matter what gold price does you have that hard constraint in terms of how much gold you can produce that's that you know compared to that fiat currency system that's a much more sound system so it's not just whether or not you have inflation or deflation it's whether you can even change it or whether a centralized entity can even change it and so it's not just about being quote unquote deflationary or less inflationary it's about how reliable, how much trust we place in the idea that 10 years later, that that exact monetary policy is still going to be in place.
1: But back to proof of stake, the TLDR That I essentially viewed as
0: equity-like, where it, it's inherently centralization. Um, you know, I've seen it described as, as you know, kind of a, a proof of work in disguise in some ways. Um, and it's one of those things where maybe it's useful for certain applications, but it's not when you choose if you want to maximize decentralization and have it be this kind of global money that's, that's rather resistant to state attacks.
1: Yeah. Well, we did it. We had a, we've had had a good year, Lynn. We've made 11 shows, I think. We missed one.
0: Yeah, I was traveling. You were traveling. Yeah. So selfish.
1: Um, what are you looking forward to next year?
0: I'm looking forward to see... So right now, we're obviously in an inflation period. Mm-hmm. I'm looking I'm looking to see what happens with some of these transition periods, right? So we've had this period where the United States did a lot of fiscal stimulus and we're facing kind of a fiscal cliff. Uh, we're going to see how they navigate that. They're also now trying to tighten monetary policy into this inflation. On the other hand, China went through this big crackdown year. And you know, based on political realities, we're probably going to see them trying to have the dust settle and kind of move up a little bit. And so we're going to see how these, these, maybe these cycle turns play out. Um, and Bitcoin's big enough where it's a macro asset now. Mm-hmm. It's like if you use Google as an example, you know, when Google was a young company, regardless of what the economy was doing, it, it could grow at like 100% a year because it's just eating market share from other advertising methods and, and other search engines and things like that. But once it becomes by far the dominant player in its industry, it now is the economy. So if the economy slows or, or accelerates, Google's affected. And Bitcoin's kind of like that, where when it's super small, it's its own thing. It, it always had kind of some linkage to liquidity in some ways. But when it becomes more institutionally held and more widely held, it becomes a little bit more tied to economic cycles. And and you can see, you know, it, it obviously liquidity affects it very much, but also things like inflation and other variables. So I'm curious to see if we start to get some decoupling uh Say with Bitcoin compared to growth stocks or compared to the stock market in general I'd be curious to see some of those we could see inflationary pressures damage company margins for example and you could see stocks run into some turbulence while maybe you know the advantage of commodities in inflationary environments is they don't have margins they are you know they're the things that are in many cases eating into other companies' margins and so you could see a decoupling uh, and so there's a bunch of things like that that I'm looking for. And just looking for ongoing maturation of of the industry. I'm looking to see some of the developments that might happen because of taproot, right? So it's one of those things where maybe it was overemphasized initially, but then underemphasized when you look out several years, the things that, that could develop from it. Uh, I'm watching lightning. I'm watching all sorts of things. There's all sorts of development that's happening that I'm excited about.
1: Well it's gonna be a big year. Uh, thank you again for everything you've done this year. Uh, I think you're brilliant. <laughs> I really do. I think everyone does. Uh, whenever I post a show, it's constant uh, amazing comments. I still can't understand how you know so much stuff, but um, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you every month, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I wish you a happy Christmas, a new year, and uh, let's see what we do next year. Well,
0: thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad we're able to meet in person and do this yeah, for the first time in person. Yep. Uh, and so hopefully people enjoy it. Um, we had a nice
1: meal the other night. Hmm. we had a nice meal the other night we did yes a little bit of champagne a little bit of champagne for christmas but no it's great to meet up and see what we can do in 2022 absolutely excited take care okay thanks for listening to what bitcoin did if you want to get in touch you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon.